Hello, dear patrons. Welcome back to Outfit Bunga Bunga. It's Sunday, the 17th of October. You're hearing this in a couple of weeks' time. And we are doing another three articles where we each bring an article and uh, it's a bit of a show and tell. Often these will cohere around a sort of a theme. This time, they are very much all about the same thing. Um, But it's an important thing. It's about labor and uh, changes in supply and demand. So anyway, hello, Phil. Hi, Alex. How's it going? All right. Good. Uh, I'm not sure why that was so sarcastic. Maybe something more enthusiastic. George? Hello, George. Hey. Great to to talk to you guys. Really looking forward to the discussion. For for listeners, this is just because we've been discussing tedious things, administrative things, for about an hour before this. So it's my favorite bit. <laughs> We're going to try the podcast, talking well, about doing it, not actually doing it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the for the podcast foreplay rather than the the real thing. Um, but we're gonna get we're gonna get cracking. I'm sure we'll have uh, energy dedicated and in reserve for the actual meat of the thing rather than um, these uh, tired hellos. Um, so we've got articles from a range of publications. I guess you could say that they're all liberal because everyone's a liberal today. No one's not a liberal, but we have a right liberal, a centrist liberal, and a left liberal. Um, that's not the three of us. I mean, the the publications. I'm referring to the very much to the publications. Um, and we are going to start, uh, we're going to start with the right liberal one, I suppose, and that's George. Yeah, well, we can we can see what list, who listeners think the the left, the centre, and the right liberal out of um, the three of us. But no, my um, my article this this week is from the Economist, um, a publication which we previously talked about in episode one hundred and four with Alexander Zevin, where we did a history of of this particular publication, which was I think a really interesting discussion. First published in September. Uh, 1843 to take part in a quote severe contest between intelligence which push which presses forward and an unworthy timid ignorant obstructing our progress so we'll see um who on the podcast today is the uh, <clears throat> uh which of those those two uh combatants in in the discussion so yeah so in the economy <laughs> from- <laughs> i'm sorry to do this but but i didn't know that you could do this some sort of emoji thing on uh on, on Zoom and Phil just made a kind of excruciating crying face. I don't know what you call that emoji in response to what George just said, which is great. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry well, to have interrupted. No, that's you're, lucky, fine. you're lucky that you've escaped Zoom that that much in the last few years, Alex, that you don't even know about the emojis. So I would say it's an unworthy, timid uh, interlocutor who will use an emoji rather than say something. But there we go. That's just just me. I do like to have a a discussion um, and a debate, not just uh, send another emoji in a Zoom call. Anyway, the article is from the 16th of October and it's titled Wages are Surging Across the Rich World, What It Means for the Economic Recovery. And as always with The Economist, it was written by Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. or Dr. Economist, not not by a named uh, individual. So, yeah, basically, what's this article saying? The article starts off by saying that the, you know, previously pundits would have been checking the latest statistics on COVID cases um, quite obsessively. And now it's uh, inflation numbers that they're doing that they're doing this with because, you know, there's this daily sort of ticker, which is showing how how prices are, are rising. Um, all across the world, but particularly in, in America, this is where the article starts. American consumer prices rose by 5.4% in the year to September. So this is the, the figures published on October 13th, which we'll be discussing, I guess, across all the all three articles for today. So yeah, I guess the the way that the, the economist, and this is probably quite characteristic of where they're coming from, pitches this is that the prospects for inflation in the global economy, as the IMF put it, are highly uncertain. So you've got, and this is particularly the case in the British context, um, soaring energy costs. So gas, fuel, um, you know, British distance might have been have, have been kind of driving around uh, the country looking for, for some fuel to uh, to buy, as, as many people have been. Um, so this is the this is one side of it. The other side is, of course, there's shortage of workers, which or not, of course, but this is something we're going to be discussing. Shortage of workers, which has been uh, pushing up wages. So these two things together, are we going to see inflation? And I think the context of this is is interesting because, obviously, when the fa- when the pandemic first struck, this was a massive change to the labour force, massive change to the the a demobilisation of certain parts of of the economy. Not not all workers, of course. Um, which obviously led to a whole range of uh, changes, but 
now we're in this situation where as you know can people be lured back into the labor force is there a possibility that in fact labor's bargaining position might be might be stronger after the after the pandemic so it's a it's a very useful overview as it often is in the economist synthesizing a lot of information from a lot of context there's as as also often with the economist a lot of useful charts and which summarize some of these kind of macro um indicators so the change in um salary in oecd countries so that's kind of the, the rich countries there's a i mean this may or may not be surprising an increase in um in labor compensation per employed person so you, you can see this obviously hitting a bit of a floor um in 2008-2009 and then a continued increase since then and not a massive decrease during the pandemic but um in 2021 showing actually even in germany where uh, unions have long been been acquiescent showing an increase so yeah i think the article is useful because it shows that this this kind of increase in in wages is not universal across all sectors not universal across um all quintiles of the uh, wage distribution so in britain for example the, there's a, there's an increase in to put, it, to put it euphemistically, there's an increase in dispersion of annual pay growth, i.e. there's an, uh, a greater variation in the annual increases. So accommodation and food service sectors, um, which have been struggling to attract workers, you see a greater increase and in manufacturing, less so. Um, so, yeah, I think the um, probably the, the way that The Economist uh, pitches this is that you have the... As always, I think from their point of view, with the increase in wages, you have the spectre of what happens if pizzas get more expensive? What happens if these kind of, you know, let's put it this way, these kind of greedy workers with their increased wage demand um, cost, uh, make us all have to pay more for our, for our margaritas from, from Domino's. So this idea of passing on price uh, increases to consumers is something which, which the article also uh, touches on so i think kind of just to, to wrap it up one of the changes which it kind of reflects on at the end is what the what is going to be the um response of firms to a new context where hybrid working you may have a, an anchor day wednesday where people go into the office in in office jobs but other than that they may not so there's definite opportunities for for decreasing costs um and for increasing efficiencies because you don't need such a large office space. What happens when um, firms have invested in technology to, to meet this demand for hybrid working and potentially saved costs? Will they? Um, what will happen to, to real wages in, in this context? So yeah, I think they, they conclude the rise in wages reflects a number of these kind of underlying longer term uh, trends and is not necessarily linked to going to be linked to inflation. But um, forecasting prices is obviously similarly to forecasting uh, COVID cases, not not uh, so straightforward. And um, if it continues, the effects will be quite profound. Phil, uh, a couple of months ago on this podcast, I can't remember, it might have been the three articles, we were discussing potential rising inflation and you dismissed it yeah. because you said that rising that wages weren't going to rise. So it was just a supply side thing that would then pass. What do you think now? Uh, not exactly. I said that I didn't think wage increases would be institutionalized um, because there are no labor movements really to um, translate these uh, pressures into consistent demands. There's no labor militancy. And I think that's what's needed really to make inflation kind of genuine rather than just kind of price spikes. Uh, well, not genuine is the wrong word, but, you know, to make it sustained and um far more kind of uh, significant. I think, I mean, so I wouldn't change my mind and we'll talk a bit about the role of whether or not there's an increase in labor militancy with um, uh, one or two of the later pieces we're talking about on on, on this chat. I suppose the only th other things I might add to what George was saying, um, it is, I mean, I, it's worth putting in perspective. We've, we historically speaking, we've been in a low inflation era and destroying or overcoming inflation was the way in which neoliberalism established itself through monetarist policies. And it was understood that destroying inflation meant destroying organized 
is Labour back in the 80s. I mean, this was a very kind of clear equation in the minds of the business press and bosses, um, in bosses' minds among capitalists, employers and policymakers at the highest level. So I think the, you know, there is an underlying theme in all of these discussions, discussions of inflation, which is that it's taken as a proxy for social, for distributional conflicts that have been absent for a very long time. And there has been, I mean, you know, people have been expecting inflation uh, for some time because simply because given demographic trends all over the world, including in China itself, um, you know, the world population is stabilizing and shrinking in many places. And so labor market tightening, which is to say um, less labor market supply was expected to feed through into higher wages at some point. But the lockdown pandemic and the consequences of lockdown has accelerated all that with all the supply chain disruption and the furlough scheme, I suppose, as well in different places. So, I mean, I think this is what's most interesting about the discussions of inflation is less the concrete predictions, which we can leave to you know, people who are more specialized, but rather thinking of it as a proxy or as the way in which the business press in particular kind of conjures with the specter of class warfare, because that's what they take inflation as a um, indirect signal of, I think, and their concern about whether or not, as George says, workers are going to be eating more deeply into into profit margins. And this is something mentioned in the Economist article itself, right? Quite stupidly, because it says, you know, uh, that the well, there's a risk that wages might eat into um, profits, which means then that there'll be less money for investing um, in the long run, and that will. Uh, you know that then everybody suffers because there's no long long-term investment in the fundamentals of economic growth which is stupid given the fact that businesses have had such enormous profits they've been hoarding cash for so many years now and rates of business investment have been historically low across the developed world and especially in the um, in the British and American economies yeah. by comparison <laughs> to previous rates so the idea that you know that suddenly there's a threat to rates of business investment because because workers are getting paid a few percentage points more is absurd. Yeah, I mean, I found that bit quite interesting, that blackmail. There's actually a double blackmail, but I'll come on to that in just a second. But over the past couple of years, this the, the success of the neoliberal experiment in holding down wages and holding down inflation is something that they have then become a victim of. I mean, it's something that Adam Tooze has argued forcefully, including on this podcast. Uh, we've discussed it a number of times in discussing Tooze's work and in more generally. And I think even even something like The Economist may have worried about too low inflation and talking about, you know, how do we start stimulating a little bit of inflation? Now, of course, it's starting to worry now that that inflation uh, especially is associated with perhaps some element of, of worker militancy or at least tight supply, tight labor markets. Um, that that double blackmail, I think is interesting because they do two, it does two, two kind of, uh, there's two prongs to that. One is that, as Phil already mentioned, that if uh, wages start eating into profits, that's bad because uh, there won't be an investment, therefore the economy will be bad long-term and therefore it'll be bad for workers. So therefore workers do not press for higher wages. You should not press for higher wages. The other one is the one that George already mentioned. The You will have you know, your, your margarita from, uh, I think they made, they're talking about the pizza, not the, uh, not the drink. Anyway, from, uh, from Domino's uh, is gonna become more expensive. So that's another reason workers shouldn't press for higher wages because most likely it'll lead to higher price increases and that will lead to an inflationary spiral in which people won't win out again yeah exactly and also it might have a domino effect when, mm. with um other prices increasing sorry just wanted to, to to throw that in there yes well thank you uh you know you just commandeering things here like a little caesar uh, sorry that's just terrible I'll leave those to you, George. I'll leave. Those. I actually don't. I actually don't get. Is that a it's a, it's a pizza? It's reference? a pizza chain, Little Caesar. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't. I mean, there's nothing you can but work with. Actually, pizza I have hut, a. So. I actually have a segue to a point, which is they do. They talk about the economic pie. It may be not a pizza pie, but they do talk about the economic pie, and this is what I would call the like the bigger pie argument. Like they're like. It's quite, it's, I think it's quite a characteristic kind of argument from The Economist, which is, I mean, one thing you can do is you can change the distribution of the economic pie, raising the labor share or the proportion of GDP paid to workers as wages. But that's not, that's, and then they say, but another happier possibility. Um, if, if productivity rises, then wage growth need not um, cause sustained inflation, nor push up 
labor share and said that economic pie would grow with more for everyone. So there's definitely a theme to this article. Talk about dominoes. They mentioned the economic pie twice. I'm just, maybe I'm just, it's making me hungry for, for, to get to have a pizza this evening. Um, but anyway, I did have a semi-serious <laughs> point did here, you? which is that the, I have to make it up now off the top of my head. No, um, it's completely left, left, left my brain. The idea that essentially, yeah, that they can't really talk about class warfare, or class struggle. So they have to talk about like, who's going to get bits of pie. That's, that's bad. Like we don't like, why don't we just have a bigger pie? Then it's better for everybody. So we can just, you know, we can just focus on productivity rather than the division between capital and labor in terms of who gets the most out of that pie absurd as well because i mean they know i mean you know they know very well because they've been discussing this again for a very long time before it was pressing and threatening and you know actually but possibly eating it or eating into profit margins they know very well that productivity increases since the 70s haven't translated into wage growth everybody you know the famous crocodile graph that i imagine many of our listeners have seen by now is the wage uh, productivity um, continues rising since the 70s and um, wage growth has remained stagnant in the US economy. So, you know, the idea that uh, they can kind of uh, just uh, gesture in the direction of productivity gains being the most sensible option, given that productivity gains haven't translated into enhanced living standards um, for people. Yeah, um, and, and there's yeah. worse than that too, because the, the reality is also that productivity growth has been low. So productivity growth has been low, um, but it still has massively outstripped wage incre- wage growth, right? Yeah. And then they do this thing in the article where they start talking about, which uh, George referred to, find, think suggesting that, well, maybe if, if productivity is increasing and wages increase in line with productivity, everybody benefits, right? The pie grows, et cetera. Um, and there's no kind of uh, class con- distributional conflict yeah, over they, but yeah. but the, the thing, sorry, just one, just to finish the point, the thing that they point to as a possibility for why that might be is, you know, the idea that hybrid working may be efficient. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a, spe- you know, management specialist, but that seems to me completely fanciful. The idea that, that people working from home has actually mad- led to this massive productivity spurt and that therefore um, inflation won't buy. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, yeah, because I mean, the reports, so I find it hard to believe. At least in you know, at least in kind of my end of things, our education. Um, I mean, obviously, it's it's also very difficult to talk in kind of productivity terms with respect to the kind of um, you know what's being kind of delivered. What, and, yeah, what is it that academics produce? Yeah, good yeah, good point. So, good self so, no, but also productivity you. shouldn't be you know shouldn't be the determining factor. Productivity in is not so. the determining factor in education. Thank you, Jesus Christ, George. Um, what trying to trying to pretend you're not PMC there? Yeah, good luck with that one. Anyway, <laughs> um, the you know I, I mean you keep on seeing mixed reports, right? And it seems to be a genuine kind of point of conflict among different, both among within sectors and across sectors. Um, on the one hand, I mean the Economist piece here it mentions the fact that there seems to be an increase in output per head um, as a result of the lockdown. And like George says, I mean, they could increase efficiencies just by reducing kind of overheads, perhaps. Um, On the other hand, you hear so many kind of complaints as well, again, in the business press and also reported more widely about bosses complaining, certain bosses trying to get people back to the office, bosses complaining about workers being at home. Um, And I do I do struggle to believe also that it is in workers' interests um, to be more homebound and to be more isolated from uh, you know from their from their fellows i mean uh I you think that's in workers that... interests or bosses interest i think i guess what i mean is it doesn't seem to me straightforward no it's definitely in bosses interest like if you're if you're isolated from your fellows as as you put it um or yeah or your colleagues then it's much more difficult to to organize it's much more difficult to but translate just to share the individual information. To translate the individual or, or to recognize that the individual challenges that you face are not yeah. actually individual, but they're collective and they're, they're um, faced by everybody. Also, I, th- I think as, as far as I've seen it, uh, the research tends to suggest that the, the, the time saved by office workers who um, are commuting less 
that is more made up for and more than made up for by increased um hours put in on on yeah. the the emails the microsoft teams the zoom i mean i've and seen the, i've seen those figures meets. as well so it doesn't seem to me you know like what it i guess we'll see what comes out in the wash but it seems to me far less straightforward and as george you know you're more dependent on technology um which is to say all the kind of the informal camaraderie that you might be able to build up in the office and that is part of people's public lives at the end of the day, you know, being outside the home, all of that kind of stuff is, uh, is there'll be far less scope for that. And that doesn't seem to me to, you know, it doesn't seem to me to be good for, for workers in any sense, let alone in the sense of actually um, being in a position to collectively press forward um demands that they might might have of their employers yeah i think i think there's also a like a, an element which can't really be uh, overlooked which is that the if you're working from home more or if that kind of expectation is 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 looser then the other side of that is that the your employer has more reason to be concerned interested able to inspect your your home like i think that is yeah. not a you know, that's not necessarily a, a, a good thing. Um, if you're if you're in an employment relationship, work. if you're selling your your labour power for a wage and all, all that sort of thing. So yeah, I mean, but anyway, to to to, to I mean, maybe to to return to the to the point about, I mean, Phil, you made the <clears throat> this point about you know, will labour eat into the into profit margins? I mean, this it's another met it's another metaphor around pies eating into that kind of the, the stuffed crust of the economic pie. Um, I think it's a good it's a good way to 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 to, to situate it and to, to yeah maybe we can move on to the other two articles. yeah let's 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 do that before you carry on this analogy any further. Okay, so the the next article is uh, well, it's my one. It's from. Paul Krugman in the New York Times from the 14th of October uh, called The Revolt of the American Worker, which might be a little bit of a, of a grand title for what's actually going on, but we can explore that as we go along. Uh, I'll be quick in describing it because it covers similar ground to what The Economist piece does and to what the, the next piece, which is from Jacobin, covers as well um, and actually covers it in, in shorter ground. Basically, Krugman starts off by making the comparison with the 2008 financial crisis, where the period after that was characterized by inadequate demand and the attempts by uh, policymakers to try to increase demand. So, you know, um, the Obama stimulus specifically in the US, which only lasted for a little while and uh, then then evaporated. And, you know, you can see, especially in Europe, the kind of um, uh, shortage of demand, inadequate demand throughout the euro crisis and so on. And that this period is different because this is characterized by uh, a supply shock, right? And this is something that we discussed, obviously, with Adam Tooze about his book very much about the 2020 supply shock. And it's something that is continuing now and is, is probably uh, more forcefully expressing itself that uh, that these supply shortages. And these are things which uh, go beyond just tight labor markets, i.e. a shortage of, of workers, but apply um, across the a whole range of sectors, right? So there's supply chain disruptions in terms of ships not being able to reach the port and hang out. You know, there's a huge bunch of ships outside of uh, the port of LA right now, unable to dock and unload. There's an energy shortage, uh, which is in a whole range of different countries around the world. And we've got an all episode coming out. All of this is out. caused by Brexit. <laughs> yeah, just, exactly. Just all Brexit. Yeah, remember. exactly. Um, Brexit didn't just uh, lead to Armageddon in the UK, but global Armageddon, in fact. Um, anyway, so these supply chains... I don't think you can have Armageddon in one country. I don't no, think that's, that's how right. it works. Yeah, yeah international uh, Armageddon. Anyway, so the, the energy shortages is something that we have a dedicated episode on coming up uh, very shortly, or maybe you will have already heard that by the time this comes out. I'll have to check the calendar. Um, but uh, but so there, there's these supply chain eruptions all, the, all over the chart. And at the same time, you have very high demand. And this high demand was created already during the pandemic, uh, or at least sort of the depths of the pandemic, when people started buying more stuff online, basically, to put it simply, rather than going out and doing things, right? So uh, Krugman gives the uh, the very bourgeois example of people remodeling their kitchens instead of going out for, for dinner at a restaurant. But you know, you can you can think of other examples. Um, according to uh, 
to to the way you look at life. But um, I was hoping you were going to come up with another example there to prove that you weren't like irredeemably bourgeois. No, I wasn't. No, like, I was just another was, example, like blah 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 blah. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, no. But that's I've all got, I can think about is is obviously I, I didn't remodel my kitchen, the, but uh, segueing from the the the, the pizza chat of the last um the no, last yeah article. please don't please let's not like we don't need it we don't need it we don't need it okay do sorry sorry um, I'll, I'll let you continue but in any case you know uh money that you might have spent out in a bar with friends you're you're spending at home you know you're buying drinks or whatever getting them delivered at home or whatever um there you go see that's really my example making, which is making very, your own very, cocktails and exactly which is very true to, to my personal examples yeah yeah um anyway so um and what is remarkable about this, and this is something that George has already talked about, Phil's going to talk about, so I won't belabor the point, but total employment is down uh, 5 million people uh, in the US. And it's something that's especially felt in the hospitality sector, where it's, there's a decline of 9%. And uh, how to describe this? Well, he this is being talked about, and I, this isn't the term that Krugman invents, but he, he refers to it, the great resignation, uh, and which if, if we want to take it to the kind of more symbolic level, there's kind of two ways to understand that. One is resignation in the terms of resign in that people are quitting their jobs uh, and, and, not, and maybe searching for work elsewhere, but not accepting whatever deal comes their way, whatever offer, job offer comes their way, but also the great resignation in a different sense of, of uh, giving up of uh, stopping looking for work. And that's another factor that's going on here. And which something that we should uh, explore as we discuss this, because there's not only the factor that there's tight labor markets, people don't want to work crappy jobs. And especially in the US where he calls it, you know, it's a no vacation nation. People work long hours for low pay and a uh, few benefits. And in that situation, people are quitting, especially jobs and things like hospitality, where they've had to often either lose their jobs throughout the pandemic, be furloughed in, in the case where that was uh, a possibility, um, or work through the pandemic uh, and, and being exposed to the risk that other people weren't. So many people are then quitting those sorts of jobs. Um, but there's also an element to which people are maybe just not seeking to re-enter the job market. They are taking early retirement, maybe making do with uh, less than they had before. And um, just to throw this in there, um, this is not from the article, but there's an element of people yeah effectively making do with less maybe they've moved in with their partner or in some ways changed their living arrangements to make it cheaper maybe they've moved out of an expensive city where they were previously working and deciding to do freelance remote work from from somewhere it's that's cheaper to live uh so this is su potentially suggested a very large transformation um but we will have to see all right over yeah to you i mean i think well i think that's right i mean you know and i suppose krugman you know he's quite open in this piece and that he says you know he kind of more or less admits that it's very hard to infer what's going on and there might be some as you suggest alex there might be some enormous kind of uh, social changes that we haven't really that have you know disguised in some form or are being hidden behind other um, factors or whether like you say people are just um perhaps kind of opting out of work um, or are finding ways, leaving their jobs, leaving the, wherever they live and all of this. I mean, so he gestures to this at the end of the piece where he says, you know, the pandemic is the kind of the factor which perhaps explains the great resignation that people are reassessing their lives. Um, and I, you know, I suppose it's possible. The only thing which makes me somewhat skeptical is that, you know, it's not as if, um, I mean, the idea that you didn't know that your life was terrible, you know, that you kind of had a very low wedge job and that you had tremendous, kind, you know, a poor standard of living and tremendous pressures in meeting all of your outgoings and that only the lockdown and COVID suddenly made you realize all of this. Mm. It's not as if, you know, as if the options are that much better since the lockdown ended um, or that suddenly, you know, there's this raft of, um, you know, glittering new jobs of you know high wage jobs for all these people who were uh, locked in to prior even to lockdown into kind of poorly paying service sector jobs so all of this makes it more mysterious it's difficult to work out what's going on maybe you know maybe a lot of maybe people are trying to go freelance maybe people are spending down money that they kind of saved during the lockdown or off the back of furlough schemes um, I don't know, you know, like um, it's very, it seems it's very hard to guess, but something, it seems like something is happening that's difficult to infer off the back of what the figures tell yeah. us. Yeah. So just, just a couple of points on this. So, you know, one, maybe one, one highbrow, one lowbrow, like a, a connection 
So he, he starts off by saying all happy economies are alike. Each unhappy economy is unhappy in its own way, which, as I'm sure all our listeners know, is a reference to Anna Karenina or Anna Karenina, depending on how you, you're supposed to pronounce it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a good that's a good a good um, literary start to the piece. But the other thing that I wanted to mention was <clears throat> literally five minutes before we started recording, got a um, got a message from somebody who a friend of mine who I know doesn't listen to the podcast, um, but they can pick pick me up on this if, if they do hear this, but I don't see that happening, where they said um, they mentioned uh, the Reddit, the, the, sorry, the subreddit, I think that's how you talk about it, r slash anti-work, um, which is just loads of people giving details of how their job at the moment is really shit and they've just decided to quit. And so there's one um, guy and you, you assume that this is real it could it could well be fake who is a bartender and got texted by their boss at like three o'clock in the morning saying I need you to come in from t- 11 a.m to 10 p.m today we have an event scheduled and only one bartender and then they're like no tomorrow's my day off and then the boss is like you need to be a team player it isn't all about you please come in tomorrow and over the course of the the um, discussion the, the boss is proved to be quite unreasonable and then the uh, the bartender says no I fuck off I, I quit so that's a, that's a kind of a, a good example of, of the great resignation that you know maybe people uh, there is a certain amount of um realization that the um the past 18 months have have seen whether exaggerated or not but like a, a lot of people being forced to kind of take on a lot of risk in in their in their work and don't feel particularly inclined to, to do that anymore um but yeah i think what what's interesting to about this article um to me is that the like so it's in the new york times and the conclusion is like and this is how it's framed the new choosiness by workers that's why i wanted to bring up the r anti-work um while this new choosiness by workers who feel empowered is making consumers and business owners lives more difficult let's be clear overall it's a good thing american workers are insisting on a better deal and it's in the nation's interest that they get it so it's kind of it. I think it shows the very low level of kind of organised labour and labour militancy that the NYT can be sort of saying like, you know, good on them, like good, good for them. The workers, they're getting what they deserve. It's more um, than it's more than that. I mean, the but I, I wonder how long it's going to be before you get to the stage where it's like, nah, they're overreaching. Or well, I mean, Krugman's career is it's testament to this, right? What do you mean? Well, in that he he himself has gone from moved from a more liberal position uh, to to a one which is more uh, more social position. Let's put it that way, or more you know, social uh, <laughs> Social. What does that mean? More social <laughs> position. Well, in the sense of uh, well, effectively, you know, as a Keynesian, um, being less wedded to uh, to sort of market mechanisms and uh, he's a bit more d- left wing in his views maybe. Effectively. I mean, but the biden administration has uh, you know has basically endorsed this as well i mean it's but it's just like george says i mean it's very easy to do given that it you know it's not channeled or directed through any kind of uh, meaningful at least at the moment through any kind of meaningful organized labor um and therefore it can be easily claimed and so the biden administration has endorsed it because they know it's a kind of uh, an easy way for them to fend off, um, you know, to kind of seem like they're backing blue collar voters to fend off Trumpian attacks um, and to say that they're standing up for America's middle classes, for America's workers. Yeah, so, it's like it's, you know, good on you. If your boss texts you at three o'clock in the morning saying come in at 11 and you tell them to fuck off, then, you know, that's good. If you uh, organize a strike in your workplace, well, maybe that's not nah, that's not that's not a good thing that's not insisting on a better deal that's 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 bad that's bad vibes well that's not social yeah well i mean I, I, want to, I, I want to return to the central kind of conundrum of this like which is what phil highlighted about you know people are leaving jobs and maybe taking up other jobs and you know there might be slightly higher wages on offer but not necessarily uh, excellent, you know, offers or, you know, the wages, wages aren't rising that much. And so what, what is actually at stake here? Why are people dropping out, right? Why are people um, able to do this, willing to do this? And I think one thing you could say is that there may, you know, there is a kind of broader, longer term um, divestment from work in the, and, and the kind of, I don't know what you call it. I mean, I guess the, the kind of, uh, you know, neoliberal centrist uh, interpretation of it would be like to call it a motivational crisis. But there's also, but I would put it in different terms in terms of a crisis of social purpose, maybe that 
obviously working often sucks and most jobs suck, but at the same time, you would say that there should be some sense of a, maybe a humanist work ethic, if not a, if not a kind of Protestant work ethic of a sense of, you know, we collectively need to do this work and having a certain amount of pride in what you do. Okay. If your job is complete bullshit, it's very hard to do that. But, you know, if, if you, you know, build build big machines then you're like well these big machines need building because this is what makes the world go round and you want to fight for a, a bigger share of the pie um if not the whole pie factory but you know you still believe that those things need to be done but with a lot of you know what david graber called bullshit jobs it's hard to to really have that investment in there now the question is is like why now are people deciding to resign in this great resignation yeah. You know, what what has been the and the pandemic, I guess, would be the the thing that people then were stuck at home in many cases, right? Um, and during that period didn't seem to kind of didn't lead to any sort of revolt or, or rebellion against this current situation. Whereas now maybe there seems to be an element of people going, Well, I spent all this time at home with less money, but actually my life was maybe better than when I was working really hard and making shit money. So maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I can get by. With less, and I just to make a reference to 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 a film which maybe captures this to a certain extent, is um, the film with uh, Francis Francis McDormand in the starring role called. Now I'm obviously vamping just to try to remember the name of the title of the film. Um, by I the you Chinese... say Francis Fukuyama in the, yeah, the lead no, role. Not that one here. Um, no, the um, Nomadland. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Thank you, Nomadland, where she also, you know, is struggling and working in Amazon, whatever, and then decides to just. Um, there's a kind of Italian autonomous word for this, like auto reductionism or something like that. But basically, to just kind of drop out from from the whole system of work and live. Uh, on the cheap out in the desert and, you know, find community again and whatever. Now the film was criticized for, for portraying that to, to Rosalie, but I think there might be some element of, uh, of truth in terms of at least what it's of a dynamic that it's portraying there. When you say truth, do you mean that people are doing it? Not that it's good. But exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Cause I mean, that's, that's, that's been a hippie. One. It's been a kind of a hippie, like, what is it? Tune in, drop out. I don't know what the next thing is, but yeah, I mean, I guess the, yeah, the, it's, it's useful to distinguish between work and a job. Like work is, is one of the things which gives, which gives life meaning. A job is pretty much always one of the things which, which takes uh, meaning away. Um, and I think, you know, there's no easy, there's no easy solution to that, to that conundrum. That's the form in which labor, like that's the form that labor takes at this this point in time i don't like you mean it capitalism go along with it yeah i don't like it but I have to go along with it because you know that's I, I do like to kind of eat and have shelter and all that sort of sort of thing um so i need i do need you know my wages for that but um yeah i mean i don't think that's a viable like political strategy it's quite individualistic isn't it it's quite like it's quite um I was going to say the hated words petty bourgeois because I'm not going to do that. It's quite um, it's quite like an easy option. No, oh, the yeah, petty, bo- the petty bourgeois does not drop out because he has to tend to his store that he that he owns and so has to work quite hard to keep that thing going. So it's not petty bourgeois at all. That's where that's why I didn't say petty bourgeois. I've been picked up from using that word that phrase indiscriminately by by certain <clears throat> certain um, uh, pedants that, that that listen to the show. Phil, um, not Phil. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing Phil in. <laughs> He's a pedant who doesn't listen to the show. He's on the show and doesn't listen to it. And is not a pedant. Um, no, just to say, I mean, it's an interesting thought, right? Um, it's very hard to know. I mean, I don't, maybe, you know, maybe there are people who have uh, got a better sense of what is happening with uh, the people who are kind of job switching. If they're actually getting jobs with better wages in different sectors, if they're moving geographically, if they're, I don't know, uh, like you say, getting married, uh, living different places, uh, moving in with partners, having kids, uh, you know, who knows? Well, who but knows? I guess, but I, the the point about uh, you know reducing their their cost of living, right, is 
that it's not about getting married and having kids, which would seems to in some ways kind of moving up in the world and having the capacity to build yeah, it a wouldn't, family. It wouldn't, it's about right. kind of moving in with another family and bringing the rent down or moving to somewhere cheaper and, you know, giving yeah. up on, on earnings. But, but you, yeah. No, like you say, the nomad land kind of phenomenon, maybe, you know, maybe it is a lot of that. People are downsizing, as you say, and kind of um, avoiding, avoiding the drudgery of wage labor. Often maybe the pandemic made them, you know, and the lockdown made them feel like they could do that. I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, interesting. Maybe something to explore uh, on another episode later on. And uh, but for now, we'll go to the to the third piece. And uh, Phil, go ahead. Yeah. So this is a piece. I mean, it covers much of the same ground, but from the angle of um, Jacobin, it's a piece by one of their staff writers, Alex N. Press. It's called "U.S. Workers Are in a Militant Mood," and it was published on the seventeenth of October. Um, and it, like I mentioned, it covers much of the same ground. It talks about the Great Resignation and gives some more concrete numbers on how many people are um, switching, which is to say moving out of uh, how many people have resigned from particular sectors, how many of them are moving into different sectors. And it also talks in more detail about the extent of the strikes. So there's an uptick in labor militancy, and it mentions some of the large um, strikes that are happening at the moment, including that by the United Automobile Workers at uh, the John Deere company. First strike, apparently, since 1986, and as well as there's some other kind of private sector strikes um, in, mentioned in Alabama, Kentucky, and New York. Um, there's some other kind of potential strikes in the um, coming down the pipeline, and it talks about them. So... Actually, I mean, one of those uh, didn't happen, just for, as a point of correction. Oh, they've correction. already not happened, right? They, okay. Yeah, it was announced recently. I mean, we're recording on the 17th of October. I think it was announced yesterday or the day before that the that the kind of Hollywood writers and all those types of people strike, uh, they reached a deal before needing to strike. Gotcha. So um, I suppose it's useful because it it's trying to, in two respects, to give some good figures on the on some of the kind of the job switching sectoral kind of jumping in the um, so-called great resignation and it also goes into some detail on the character of these strikes it's also interesting in terms of the political perspective that it tries to um, fit around this you know the political narrative that it tries to construct around these phenomena and just how unconvincing it is and i think that's worth drawing out um so each of the pieces we've talked about thus far have their own kind of um, political spin as we've mentioned um the unthreatening character of the great resignation means paul krugman can kind of stand up for um blue collar people the economist you know can kind of um say well it'll be okay as long as we have product and there's dangers here of distributional kind of effects and so on. And here, the political narrative that they're trying to build is that the, you know, you shouldn't resign, but you should join a union. And it's built on the, it's also built, I think, quite uh, significantly around a kind of a politic, a self-defeating ultimately around a politics of fear, because it links the switch rates, which is workers moving to a different sector around the risk of COVID-19 seeing, you know, and the risk of, um, which is one of the risks of staying in a particular job if you're exposed to COVID-19. Um, and so it's trying to kind of not only make the, you know, kind of make the claim that we're seeing the fabled class struggle is at last returning, and um, that's something to kind of celebrate, but also very basically making the case for unions. Um, and it's disingenuous in a very basic sense, because it, um, so, you know, makes it out as if uh, joining a union, as if unions aren't themselves problematic institutions, and the only the only kind of problematic institution is the employer, the employee, uh, the organisation you happen to work for, your employer, and that um, it's unproblematic to you know joining a union straightforward. That unions will kind of fight and they'll win, and the more people we have together, the better. You know all of this stuff, and it's just um, so deeply frustrating to to read. Um, to read this uh, piece, which is, uh, you know, shilling for these deeply flawed and failed organizations that, you know, as Alex Press says themselves, right, that they've not done anything for work, this United Automobile Workers haven't had a strike at the company since 1986. What have they been doing, right? And now suddenly- They've like, been waiting till the time is right. Of and course, the time is I right forget. Now. Yes, of course. I, sorry, I forgot that. That's true. So- that is what is so kind of, um, you know, uh, kind of dispiriting to read in this piece 
is this um, kind of uh, pro propagandizing for unions without even willing to acknowledge just how um, how frayed and decayed they are, and particularly public sector unions. I mean, the piece is mostly about private sector unions, but the public sector unions where there is much greater representation among, among within the labor force. I mean, you know, we've talked about this before on the pod, uh, PMC unions and um, generally how useless they are. So all this kind of um, facile sloganeering, the labor movement will need to seize this moment or this kind of language, um, which is, uh, you know, absurd in the light of, uh, you know, the way unions are at the moment. Much, much more would need to be done for um, there to be any kind of real um, significant turnaround for U.S. workers as a result of actual organizing actual institutional kind of changes and political pressure brought about by organized labor. And I don't think kind of um, this empty sloganeering for joining a union would be sufficient. I think American workers are right to be skeptical of joining unions. So you need to, you know, basically do hard work harder. If you want to join the union, um, you're going to have to do harder than that to sell it. I mean, there was one point, which is on a very narrow level that it's correct that being unionized will lock in, uh, will do a better job of locking in any increases that are seen from this period. But of course, the, the kind of wage increases that we're seeing is merely recuperating a great big loss from, you know, as Phil referred to the crocodile graph at the beginning, right? For 40 years of wage stagnation. So anything that that's kind of, a, and you had the kind of uh, depressing effects on wages of the pandemic. And so, you know, Yes, it might lock in whatever increases uh, occur from this current tight labor market, which is by no means guaranteed to continue. Um, you know, it's it's a factor of this year, next year, maybe, but we don't know how long that'll continue. Um, but the broader point, I think, the film makes is is right. Um, it's in, it's interesting that the <clears throat> like so I think one of the um, the points that the article makes is that if if workers have increased bargaining power as labor demand outstrips supply like that this leads to great resignation that this is actually like it is a it is a revealed preference that people don't want to join unions they would prefer to to kind of like to leave their job and take their like take a risk on um on joining on getting a new job in a different sector so it's in some ways you could sort of you could read it in another way these these stats and sort of see them as an indictment of yeah of the, the kind right. of the appeal of of unions at this point in time which which you know could could in some ways you kind of want to say well yeah if you haven't kind of had a strike since 1986 then you know what are you doing um but obviously on the other hand that isn't you know that is quite a that's quite a kind of a, um, a conclusion to draw um in that it's like well what does this mean for them if labor uh, bargaining power were to increase more what, what what would that lead to you know what what are the um what are the options that that an increased um a more organized or, or, or higher bargaining power labor um higher more organized or higher bargaining power labor would have to echo what george said to under or to reinforce it i suppose it's it should be think it should be seen as a you know the great resignation is not only an indictment of the of work but also of unions and maybe even um it could be seen as a as a statement of hostility and skepticism towards existing unions and that they have to work harder so the fact that jacobin is just kind of trying you know kind of uh, in insisting that people sign up without any effort that without any kind of consciousness that unions have to make an effort to pitch to American workers rather than just expect their loyalty. I mean, this is what is so obnoxious about the piece, I think. Um, you know, that is really what um, I, what I would yeah, like to see. I mean, I guess, you know, the, I, I don't think I found it quite so obnoxious as, as you sort of probably clearly did. Um, but an uptick in, in public sector strikes and a record number of workers quitting their jobs are just two signs that the pandemic has changed workers' willingness to accept a bad deal. That's the subheadline. And it's kind of like a bad deal from employers or from like the options of organized labor on this on the table at this point in time. So I think that's kind of, you know, that's that's the way, well, that's one of the implications of this that that maybe doesn't get kind of talked through in the in the article. 
Yeah, and I mean to to bring up uh, you know Albert Hirschman's famous uh, trichotomy. Oh yes, I don't please call it that. Yeah, yeah. Well, exit voice and 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 loyalty, the kind of three options available, kind of in relation to. Did you call it a trilemma? It's, I don't think it's a trilemma. I said I called it a trichotomy, but that's probably wrong as well. Anyway, let's. It's a tri- is it a trilemma? And let's not. not yeah, let's not. Yeah, let's options. not get onto this. Let's not. Let's not get hung Trichotomy. up Trichotomy. Trichotomy is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and that, you know, workers have not been exercising voice uh, in relation to their employers. Uh, now they seem to be exercising, um, you know, not, this article's talk about uh, strikes notwithstanding, haven't really been exercising voice and have been and, and now have begun to start exercising exit. Right, so leaving either leaving the job market entirely, or at least uh, switching jobs or switching sectors, um, and generally the the option has been uh, well, if you want to put it, try to wedge it into these three options. It's been loyalty, right? Stay loyal to your job, and hopefully you will improve your situation. Probably not collectively, but maybe individually. Of uh, you know, trying to work hard, get get a promotion, etc. Um, if that's at all possible, but I think it's maybe also worth applying this to unions. It's kind of to get the to follow the hook that the phil has given us that with unions the the response generally has been exit people have left unions and not joined them um and that those who have been unionized as particularly in the public sector their option generally has been loyalty rather than you know um basically sticking with their unions rather than rather than uh fighting to change them. Uh, well, maybe, they, you know, maybe they have, but there's little evidence of that because generally, uh, you know, there has the sort of contestation within unions, as far as I understand, hasn't been particularly that great to, to fight for greater militancy. If anything, people have just dropped out um, mm. both of unionized, both of unions and increasingly seemingly now out of uh, the job market entirely. So I suppose this is a conversation we'll carry on um, because it seems that finally the, we're beginning to see some of perhaps some of the, um, social, political and economic shockwaves that will continue um, ripple, I suppose, and after effects as well as a result of the pandemic and the lockdown. And those are becoming more apparent. So and so I, I imagine we'll be talking about these themes more in future inflation and in as much as it's a kind of uh, a proxy or a, for um, distributional conflicts, sharpen tensions between labor and capital. Um, the great resignation, what is happening to people? Are they leaving the labor force um, as a result of the pandemic or are they um, fi- are they actually finding improved jobs and living in better areas? And then also this question of um, whether or not uh, whether or not people will take the opportunity to fight for improved conditions, whether organized labor will be able to make a pitch to workers themselves that they will actually be able to take advantage of um of this of these circumstances to actually offer something concrete in terms of improved conditions or wages or living standards for their members yeah absolutely and if we do find ourselves talking about that uh, i think we'll be quite pleased um at least that things seem to be inching forwards and upwards to uh, a little bit at the very least um all right we'll leave that here that was- uh- Onward, huh? upwards. What is it? Onwards, ever, backwards, never. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. The old Stalinist um, slogan. Well done, Alex. East, yeah, East well, Germany. you know. Um, all right, that's been it uh, from this three articles. We'll be back with another one, uh, maybe in about a month's time. Let us know what you think, uh, particularly about these issues, because there's a lot to debate. Um, and that's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye bye. Thank you.